is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. The Federal Reserve did it again. Another interest rate hike, another three quarters of a percentage point. It matches last month's rate hike, which was the biggest since 1994. The Fed trying to put the brakes on inflation, which has been soaring. We'll go in-depth into whether it's going to work. The Justice Department reportedly investigating former President Trump's possible role in the plans to overturn the 2020 election, the one he lost. And House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is headed to Taiwan soon, and the U.S. military is making plans. There are voters in one local county. They want to secede from the state and start their own. Local man cured, apparently, of HIV at a local medical center. We'll talk to the doctor who's been treating him. More Americans who work in San Diego. They are crossing the border now to live in Mexico because it's cheaper. And baby talk. You know, um, they have a baby and then they talk to it and it's high-pitched and all the do-do-do-do and all that. Um, We do that like in all the countries in the world. It's cross languages. It's all that stuff. So we're going to look into why because there's a new study. And we'll talk to some parents who um, do it and we'll see if they can turn it on and off. And, you know, if they know or if they're like, oh, God, am I doing this? And and, and we're going (laughs) to do more than that. We're going to try to talk. To their baby. You think it's nap time, or is it going to be awake? I, we're going to we're going to wake that baby up. <laughs> if that baby's going to be in the show, that baby better be awake. <laughs> Let me tell you, it'll cry now. <laughs> Don't make the child cry. No, okay, we'll, we'll speak very softly. We start though with the economy, interest rates, and what it means for you, for all of us. David Fiorenza is an economics professor at Villanova University. Uh, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Gentlemen, I appreciate the uh, opportunity to speak to you today. So uh, the uh, Fed raises the rates. I noticed that the stock market starts uh, going way up. Uh, Why is the market reacting in a positive way to a rate increase that for many people will mean crushing interest rates? Right. Well, Wall Street doesn't like uh, news, good or bad. But in this case, the investors on Wall Street are going to be happy because they're thinking the economy has been growing too quickly the past few years. And then it got overheated right after COVID because we gave out so much stimulus money. And they're getting a little nervous to the fact that you have 500 companies on the S&P 500. You have the NASDAQ, you have the Dow 30, and they're they're looking at the at interest rates going up. But to them, it's positive because they want to slow the economy down Wall Street. They don't like to see this up and down. Uh, but then again, on the other hand, Wall Street, uh, if it rains one day, interest, uh, what happens? Stock market goes down. If it's sunny the next day, stock market goes up. So sometimes I can't put all my faith into uh, Wall Street. Did the chairman signal or telegraph in any way what he expects is going to happen next? Well, I, I think so. Look, a Jerome Powell is doing the best he can with what he had inherited uh, from the past administration and the current administration. Uh, OK, can we blame him for not increasing interest rates a few years ago? All of us can. But if you're in that position back then, you want to grow the economy out of covid. Remember, we were at we we're at high, high unemployment and we're still at low unemployment. You know, I don't buy into this thing where we're going to be going into a recession. If unemployment's three point six percent, sure, interest rates are going up on mortgages. I get that people are still spending. They're still going to concerts. They're still buying Springsteen tickets. They're buying Adele tickets. Uh, and there's people who are out of work, but not as much as it was during COVID. Okay, but that always gets us to the question that we always ask is, what are the odds that the Fed is going to screw this all up? Pump the brakes or crash the car. Yeah. 
Right, 50-50, gentlemen, that they're going to screw <laughs> this all up. Well. And I'm telling, I'm telling my students I was like this back in the days of Carter and Reagan. And I'm going to tell my students the same thing tomorrow night when I have class. Save your money. Work as much as you can. Pay down your debt. Because this is a time to start saving some money and paying down debt. Uh, you can still go out and enjoy yourselves. And I, again, I feel sorry for those. I get it. Those are out of work. And I feel sorry for those who are stuck in, a, in an area where their, their income is not going up. And that's the people it hurts the most. David Fiorenza, economics professor, Villanova University. Thanks. Can't wait to talk to the baby later. 50-50. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to talk to the baby. Gently wake the child from the nap so it can come on the radio we got, show. We have to ask the baby what he or she thinks about the interest rates and see <laughs> see where we're going with How that. worried are you about the future, <laughs> young child? Why do I think we're going to get a better answer than from the Fed? <laughs> that baby does not need to be introduced <laughs> to reality any sooner than, than is necessary. Okay, I'll... I'll Try to refrain. Still to come, there's uh, one local county. There's some people there who say they want to secede from the state. And some people who work in San Diego have found a better way to afford living in San Diego. They've moved to Tijuana. A lot of people moving. Yeah. Moving around. Right out now, of the state. Out of the state. Out of the country. <laughs> Starting okay. their own state. Right now, though, the Justice Department is reportedly looking into what role former President Trump may have played in plans to overturn the 2020 election. The Washington Post says... Two aides to former Vice President Mike Pence have been questioned recently before a grand jury. With us now is Gregory Wallace, former federal prosecutor. He was a member of the Abscam prosecution team that convicted a U.S. senator and six representatives of bribery. He's also an op-ed contributor in the or for The Hill. Uh, Gregory, thanks for being with us. Um, no smoking gun. Is that your conclusion from the uh, investigations thus far from the January 6th committee? Yes, the January 6th committee did a very effective job presenting evidence and telling a story, and a damning story, against Donald Trump. Uh, But the way a trial of Donald Trump would unfold would be completely different. And what I think is missed here is the degree of evidence you would want to have before you would bring charges against a former president which has never happened in our history. And the quantum of evidence has to be something like a smoking gun, which is a phrase from Watergate when a tape emerged with such damning evidence that three days later, uh, President Nixon resigned. Do you think people watch the hearings and they say, wow, this is this is so, so bad. I can't believe it happened still, even though we watched it on TV and we're learning all about it, but then fail to appreciate the fact that, like you said, A, this has never been done before, and B, can you really convince a jury? I, I think that is widely unappreciated. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, one of the most damning things to emerge from the January 6th hearing was this blow-by-blow account of the afternoon of the 6th when Trump did nothing while the capital of the United States was under assault. And it was dereliction of duty. And lots of people have said that. And it's absolutely what it was. But here's the thing that isn't widely understood. Dereliction of duty by a president is not a federal crime. Let me ask you something. I'm sorry, go ahead. You, you wanted to finish? No, and, and once, if that was understood, that would be a perspective that right. would perhaps temper expectations as to where this is all going to go. I am curious, though, about something, because you, you said in, in, in passing, and, and uh, correctly so, that since we've never in this country's history criminally indicted a former president— 
Uh, you have to take certain things into consideration. And that does kind of raise the question, hypothetically, if we were not dealing with a former president, uh, all things, all other things being equal, would there be enough evidence in your view to go to, to trial? And if so, doesn't that mean that despite what everyone claims about how everyone is equal before the law, that there really is a double standard? Well, I have two responses. One is I'm struggling to envision how someone other than a president could have orchestrated the events of January 6th. But, but let's, let's accept your premise. Uh, the, the answer is prosecutorial discretion, not a double standard. Prosecutorial discretion in charging and bringing criminal charges in the federal system takes into account the quantum of evidence, and is there enough to convict, but also other circumstances, including uh, the, what, what happened, what, what, how much damage was done, what are the defenses, and so on. And here, it's not a double standard when a prosecutor says, this is not an ordinary case. I want absolutely overwhelming evidence. I want maybe not a guarantee, but something close to it that I'm going to convict. I want to be able, if I'm going to indict Trump, to stick this landing, because if he doesn't, especially when the indictment is brought by the opposing party, uh, the repercussions are just going to be huge. Presidents are different. What about the idea that maybe they can get to something, but not what uh, you know some Democrats want? You can't get to seditious conspiracy. There's no smoking gun, but maybe some sort of defrauding the government or, or what a lot of people have been been prosecuted for who went in that obstructing of the of congressional proceeding. I, I think those are all plausible. Well, the most of them are plausible uh, as potential bases for charges, but. Still, the question is, for any one of those, do you have sufficient evidence to convict? And and again, because it's a former president, a, a real degree of certainty, close to certainty that you can convict. And so on the obstruction of justice, uh, the obstruction of a congressional proceeding, I think you'd have to build a case around or have to prove that when he spoke to that crowd on the ellipse, he intended to and did incite them and created a risk of imminent incitement such that they stormed the Capitol. And I'm not, I don't think the evidence is quite as strong as you'd like. It's kind of ambiguous. It'd be messy because he's, he's, he kind of laced his speech with uh, peacefully and so on. He never said, go, uh, go and break into the Capitol. He used words like fight, we're going to have to fight like hell. And, you know, that's the staple of political rhetoric, albeit when most polit when, when politicians generally use those words, they're not speaking to an armed mob. So <laughs> let, I, let me ask you, because we ran out of time. Let, let me ask you very quickly, though. Do you think that Mr. Trump might be in more legal jeopardy, potential legal jeopardy in the state of Georgia, uh, who, as you know, has been pretty uh, uh, critically looking into his actions and trying to, you know, find those extra thousands of votes? Conceivably, but I have to tell you, I've got a caveat, which is I'm a little concerned about the judgment of the Atlanta district attorney, Fannie Williams, because she recently got herself disqualified from prosecuting one of her targets. Why? The, the target is an office holder, and she went to a fundraiser of his potential opponent, 
in the fall. And a judge said, in effect, what were you thinking? And this is, this is too serious a business. Either way, if you don't bring charges when they should be brought or you bring charges when they shouldn't, for anyone to kind of be careless, not mindful of appearances. So I'm not quite certain what to make of that, but I've got some current concerns about whether the right judgment will be applied. Gregory Wallens, former federal prosecutor, op-ed contributor for The Hill. Coming up, a local man apparently cured of HIV will tell you how that is possible. And you know that baby talk every adult seems to do, you know, like, oh, you're a cute little baby. That kind of thing. Yeah. Did, was that for convinced? babies and puppies. Yeah. yeah. You, know, you know, you're right. We do it for both. Because <laughs> they're uh, cute. Yeah, yeah. Well, a new study finds every adult seems to do it no matter what part of the world. We'll talk to some parents who will show us using their very own certified baby. Yes. They're real child. <laughs> an actual yes. child. All right. Right now, though, the House Speaker Nancy Pelosi might be going on this upcoming trip to Taiwan. China not happy about that. U.S. military is a little worried. Howard Stouffer's professor of national security and international affairs at the University of New Haven, former State Department official who worked in Beijing. Howard, thanks for being here. So um, what are they worried about? Probably not that they're going to, like, take a shot at the airplane. But is this more of like a missteps, mishaps, misunderstanding kind of thing? Well, it just seems to be, uh, you know, you're going to visit a neighbor and you run into their house when it's on fire. And um, it seems like a a provocative act to take right now. Uh, This is my personal view that uh, certainly could be postponed to a time when the situation between Russia and Ukraine has calmed down or reached some kind of conclusion and that we've been able to have some kind of an understanding with China about a variety of things, including their 20th Party Congress, where they're going to probably instill uh, Xi Jinping as uh, president for life. What do do you think, though, the uh, U.S. government, the military perhaps, is worried about? What do they think China's going to actually do if, if Pelosi does step foot on Taiwanese soil? Well, I think even before she gets there, uh, they're they're suggesting, they're threatening, they're hinting that they might try to send up a whole variety of planes to accompany her aircraft, or if she's accompanied by American military aircraft on her plane flying in, that they would surround those planes, and who knows what could happen. There could be an accident, uh, you know, aircraft colliding. There could be other things that could happen. So uh, I think China's going to take a very hard stand, and it's going to be very popular in China to do that, because... Right now, people in China are really angry about the zero COVID policy, where they're getting locked up for weeks, months at a time. So uh, for the president of China to look popular, uh, he could take some pretty strong positions or actions against Pelosi. wouldn't shoot her down. I think that would be an act of war. And, of course, she's not going alone. She'll probably go with uh, Republican and Democratic members of Congress uh, as a delegation. But why do it now? It just seems like, you know, is there really a need to do it right this moment when so many other fires are burning around the world with Iran, with uh, Russia and Ukraine, and, of course, with all the economic issues. This is not the first time a high-ranking official of ours in different capacities has gone into, like, a hot spot. What usually happens to make that as safe as possible? I mean, even though we're not talking every day, or maybe we are in back channels and things, you've got each other's phone numbers. They know she's coming. Can't we just get on the phone and say, hey, guys, cool down, it's happening, and we'll worry about it later? Well, I don't think the Chinese are reacting that way. They're, uh, they're saying that uh, we're asking you not to send her in right now, that uh, the last time a Speaker of the House, who's the number two in line after the Vice President, um, goes to uh, Taiwan, that was Newt Gingrich in 1997. And, of course, China was a much, much weaker country 
1997 than its military capabilities are today. So I think uh, they're flexing their muscles, and they're making it clear that they don't want that trip to take place. I don't think they'll, you know, take military action and harm her in any way, but they could have, you know, a significant show of force. They've been having aircraft, like, for months now, flying into Taiwanese airspace, but not over the island itself, but just in the area that Taiwan claims around the island as airspace. But uh, they might actually fly into Taiwanese uh, territorial space. If uh, Pelosi is going across and, uh, and coming in, they may accompany her aircraft for part of the way and, and even accompany it out when she leaves. And, you know, that would be a tremendous show of force by the Chinese, popular in China, very unpopular in the United States, and, of course, raising tensions to a very, very high level. Is there anyone who could stop her? No, I don't think so. Biden has said he doesn't want her to go. The, the Pentagon has indicated it's serious concerns. Uh, they will do what they have to do in order to protect her, but they would rather not. They don't want to see a situation where, uh, you know, something happens and uh, Taiwan gets invaded by China. Then you have the nightmare scenario where we're, we're fighting a hot war against Russia and China at the same time. And that is not a good situation to be in. That will fundamentally alter our entire economic relations with the rest of the world and, um, and create a real firestorm of, you know, how do we manage that? Howard Stouffer, Professor of National Security, International Affairs, University of New Haven. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. 50 states, right? There's been talk of adding Puerto Rico, maybe D.C. as a 51st. Yeah, but some are already living in what could be the 51st state. There's a move now for San Bernardino County to secede from California. It would possibly be renamed Empire. With us is Rancho Cucamonga-based real estate developer Jeff Burham. He's asked county supervisors to put a measure on the November ballot about secession. Jeff, thanks for being with us. If nothing else, Empire would be a good title for a TV series, I suppose. I mean, you're serious about this, are you? Oh, I think it's 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 a time um, to do something in in our world, and I think uh, the only way to do it is if you get up and do something about it. Why do you want to leave? Is it the same kind of thing that the guys up north were trying for a while? You know, I, I, it's not really about the guys up north and what other people have tried in the past. It's really about now and what's going on in the world today, particularly in our county. You know, County of San Bernardino is being burdened with the growth of Southern California. It's where all the vacant land is. It's where people are moving. And the state hasn't been helping us with funding. They've been putting liabilities on us for expanding our roads, figuring out our own water, our own power. Um, and we're not getting our fair share of infrastructure, not, not to mention our fair share of correctional officers that prisons are building here and parolees are putting in our streets. We need funding. And the only way that we can create our own funding after we've been begging for years is to try to do it ourselves. All right. But you know that, that the odds of becoming your own state are very slim. And, and if it happens, it's going to take a really long time because it just does. So is this really meant more as just kind of a, you know, sending out a, a sort of a, uh, an SOS flare so that Sacramento hears you? You know, no, it's not about an SOS flare. This is about what we can do today. And so, you know, I'm one person. If a bunch of my friends join in and a bunch of their friends join in, a bunch of their friends join in, I think there is a path um, to succession. But 
if the worst case scenario is we get finally get our start getting our fair share of funding, we finally stop the unfunded mandates that are being put upon us in our communities, then then it's a win. Is there not blame here for some of the people that you've already voted into office? Uh, I mean, ha- have you put pressure on your assembly members to to fight harder for the money up there in Sacramento? I think, um, you know, this isn't about any specific personalities that are in elected office today, whether I voted for them or not. This is really about what, you know, responsibilities of government are. Um, and so if the existing system doesn't know how to do it, I'm pretty sure I can recruit people that uh, can bring ideas in that can solve about any problem if they're willing to have a, a civil discourse about it. And I think that's wrong with politics of our country today. We're not able to have a communication amongst two sides, whether you're you're wearing red or wearing blue or your your party starts with an R or a D. People stop trying to listen to about what the other people are trying to accomplish. Instead, it seems to be a fight to defeat each other in their arguments. And I just want to try to bring people back together. And I really want to do it in our own community, my own county. And what are these steps to become a state? You know, I think the first thing we've got to do is get uh, a vote here in our own county. Um, I've asked the Board of Supervisors that are really dealing with some tough issues right now with some some folks that have been fighting with our county um, for political reasons for the last couple of years that are trying to make our supervisors part-time. Um, I think these things are, are intertwined. If if we can't win negotiations with the state right now, what are we going to do if we have part-time supervisors in the largest county in the entire country? So the first step is get them to put it on the ballot in November, get the people to vote for this initiative, and then we get to study it um, together with potentially other counties surrounding us. And then if we put on a, a succession um, vote for the counties that join us, then it goes to the state legislature. Yeah, and then I think Congress after that. I'm curious in what you said said earlier, you know, burdened with the growth. And the way the story is presented sometimes is, is wow, look at the growth. It's cheaper. So people from L.A. move out there. They can afford homes. It's great. Um, but you're saying what? When there is so much growth and it's so fast, uh, there's growing pains and you need to help us uh, lawmakers. And I'm a builder. I want the growth. I want to help people. You know, I create an organization, National Corps, that's one of the largest affordable housing providers in the country. So I care about the people. I grew up, you know, and and less than average circumstances. And so I get the need for housing and I want to provide housing. Um, But you can't then mandate regulations that add to the burden of the cost. So when, you know, the state puts out, you know, RENA numbers, it says, okay, you communities that are growing, you have to put out your fair share of the housing and the affordable component to it. And our growth is in my neighborhood. Then they're telling us we've got to put it in. And if it needs a new road, a new street, a new school, a new fire station, then that adds gets added to the cost of the house. And it gets passed on the consumer and raises the cost of housing. So it's, you know, it's absolutely the opposite of trying to things, keep things affordable. It's escalating the cost because the people in Sacramento today don't understand what it takes to grow our economy and grow our affordable housing and, and frankly, help our families and what are really needed in the world today. Jeff Burham, real estate developer there in Rancho Cucamonga. See where their license plate read Empire Strikes Back? (laughs) There already is an Empire State. Well, yeah. So, yes, Empire Strikes Back. Very good. I had drums. What else would you call it? Symbol. There you go. (laughs) Empire Strikes Back. I like that, actually. (laughs) You're speechless. Next. (laughs) (laughs) You're totally speechless. Another breakthrough in the battle against HIV and AIDS, a man right here in Southern California and a woman in Spain, the latest in a very small group of people who are now apparently 
cured of HIV. The man here is 66, being treated at City of Hope in Duarte. First of uh, five patients who've been cured of HIV, one of five patients cured following a risky procedure. With us to explain more is Dr. Jana Dichter, uh, infectious disease doctor at City of Hope, and she's been caring for this man. Doctor, thanks for being with us. So one of five, and we already said risky. What is the procedure? How does this happen? So um, our patient went, uh, so let me just tell you a little bit about our patient first, um, the City of Hope patient. He is a 66-year-old man who was diagnosed with HIV in 1988 and um, was started on the early treatment uh, for that for that ailment back then, um, some of the early drugs, and fortunately um, was able to, um, uh, was started on highly active antiretroviral therapy by the mid to late 90s when that became available, and was doing well until he was diagnosed with um, acute myelogenous leukemia, um, which is um, a but a blood uh, cancer, and it was decided um, by his uh, hematology doctors here that the best way to uh, treat him for this was for him to undergo a stem cell transplant. And we were able to find a donor for him who carries the homozygous CCR5 Delta 32 mutation. People who carry this mutation are resistant to most strains of HIV infection. And um, what was uh, different about his experience compared to some of his predecessors who had also been uh, had HIV and went into remission after a transplant was that he was the oldest person to receive a stem cell transplant and then go on to achieve dual remission. He had been living with HIV the longest of the of the predecessors. And he also received the least immunosuppressive regimen prior to his transplant compared to the previous patients. So how difficult is this treatment? And I guess more importantly, what does this tell you about the potential for not just controlling HIV, but curing it? So this stem cell transplant is a complex procedure with significant potential side effects. So it's not a suitable treatment option for most people living with HIV. How, um, so the, the reason for that he underwent the transplant was because of his acute leukemia um, and the only uh, viable, the, 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 the curative option for that type of problem is uh, a stem cell transplant. So what this research shows is that for people who are living with HIV and develop blood cancers, this treatment may be a treatment option for them, even if they are older and have been living with HIV for many years, um, if the right donor is found. Right. You don't just want to go get transplants and things um, willy-nilly unless you absolutely need them. And he needed this, obviously, to tackle the cancer. And it was almost, what, luck of the draw? Or you pinpointed this and you knew the mutation was in there and you were hoping that it would work for for the HIV as well? It was um, so interesting. He had several uh, donor options, and the best available donor happened to have this homozygous CCR5 Delta 32 mutation, which places people, uh, it become they become resistant to having HIV. And what is the the uh, the state of your patient now? I mean, how's he doing? He's doing great. He is he's doing he's doing fantastic. And for you as a doctor, number one to to have this happen, and number two, since you said this is the longest of any patient who's now gone to remission, thirty plus years, right? To know that kind of history and to to come out on the other side. Yes. I mean, as an infectious disease doctor, I always hope to someday be able to tell my HIV patients that there's no 
evidence of remaining virus in their system. And at City of Hope, we were able to do this for this gentleman who had been living with HIV for over three decades. Is there, though, a, a time frame when you would be, I mean, are you now 100% confident that the virus is gone from your patient's body? Or is there a part of your, your thinking that, you know, let's see what happens in the next year, two, three, that kind of thing? So since his stem cell transplant three and a half years ago and being off uh, medication for HIV, uh, known as antiretroviral therapy, for 17 months, we can find no evidence of replicating HIV in his system. But doctors and scientists who treat HIV, don't, we don't use the term cure lightly because HIV can hide in reservoirs in the body. For our patient, we looked at his blood and tissue from the gastrointestinal tract and can't find any evidence of replicating HIV. Um, but before we commit to using the term cured, it really takes more time and data. But right now, what we are seeing is very promising. Can we take anything that we've learned from this and apply it to treatments that may be easier for people and more widespread, even if it's, you know, years down the line? The, I mean, stem, as I said, stem cell transplants are really a complex procedure and are not for all HIV patients, but for people who are living with HIV who get diagnosed with a blood cancer who would benefit from a stem cell transplant, this treatment option shows that even for older people who have been living with HIV for many years, um, if we were able to find the right donor, they may be able to be um, placed in remission from both ailments. Dr. Jana Dichter, infectious disease doctor at City of Hope, who is caring for this patient. Doctor, thanks for talking to us. This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Living in California is expensive. You know that. Rent, mortgages, gas, everything. Uh, some people who work in San Diego have found a new solution. They live in Mexico. It's a growing trend now that people move to Tijuana and the surrounding area, then commute back across the border to go to work. Jody Silly is one of them. She's president of the Film Consortium San Diego, also teaches at San Diego City College. Jody, thanks for being with us. So when did you end up, you know, picking up and, and moving to Tijuana? And is it that much cheaper? Well, hello. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I I actually uh, moved to Tijuana originally in 2004. And my initial reasoning was I wanted to learn Spanish. I, you know, I was told it was uh, more affordable. Um, and I ended up in a $300 apartment on the beach. And um, wow. <laughs> in my head, I said, oh, I'll live here six months to a year. I lived here six years. Wow. Um, it's not, is it still 300? It's not still $300, is it? I mean, that apartment probably. It wasn't the greatest living <laughs> conditions that so I was you've, in. So you've moved now. Yes. But that, I've actually, you the went apartment back. I live yeah. in currently is similarly priced. I mean, it's 700 a month, but it, I'm, you know, it's a two bedroom. That last apartment was a one bedroom. It just overlooked literally the beach. So I had a spectacular uh, view and just kind of an incredible. I mean, who gets to live on the beach generally? Yeah. But, you know, for for that price. But I'm sure you've done the math since, like comparing what San Diego life would have been and what Tijuana life is, and then there's like that huge difference. Yeah, it's a massive difference. Um, I, I would add, it's you know, it starts with the rent, but just the general, the food, the entertainment, the you know, it comes down to pretty much as every aspect of life: healthcare, dental care, 
vet care is one of the most important ones. I have multiple animals and uh, I, I pretty much would have been in bankruptcy if I had to bring them to U.S. vets for all the issues we've had over the years. And uh, the, you know, your average cost of just visiting a vet, for example, might be $15 for a consultation and, uh, you know, you know, very, very affordable. And, and you do, Jody, you do your medical care, did you say, and dental care all in, in Mexico? I am. Well, I do somewhat because I have health insurance in the U.S. So I do have some of my dental care in the U.S. when when it makes sense. But to me, what I love about what they have down here is there are pharmacies all over who have doctors that you can see in under five minutes. So if you have food poisoning or you know, getting a flu or any any sort of average everyday health issues that might pop up. It is far quicker and nearly, you know, cost a couple dollars even uh, to just go in, pop in, see a doctor. Of course, if something serious is happening, you know, you may need to go to the emergency room or uh, if you're going to like a U.S. doctor makes sense at a certain point with uh, certain issues. But like your average everyday thing that I would in the Typically in the U.S., I would never go to the doctor unless it's like a real emergency because it's going to take weeks to set up an appointment and be sitting in a waiting room for hours. It's just not worth it to me. Yeah, easier unless there. I'm dying. Uh, but here, the minute something happens, I'm like, oh, going to the doctor. It so so give me give me the negatives because we've talked about all the positives. But but what's the, what are the trade-offs? Well, I personally am a huge super fan of Mexico and Tijuana. I love the culture. I love everything that's here. There is, you know, you have to deal with a lot more infrastructure issues. We are in a country that does not have a super strong infrastructure, meaning the roads are kind of trash. The the power can go out through the storm, you know, when there's storms or like randomly, if I mean, there's little issues that have come up. There's water rationing relatively frequently in, in the last couple of years. Uh, like the water was off for 24 hours yesterday. They warn you usually sometimes. Uh, so the, I would say the infrastructure is the big issue that I miss. Um, or so when I do go to San Diego, I'm always like, these highways are lovely. Sidewalks are great. You know, that that type of thing to me is the big trade off. Um, how, how does it work in terms of because you're an American citizen, how does it work if you move and you live uh, as your primary resident, your only residence, I, I suspect, right, is in Mexico? How do you deal with that? Well, I technically still have residency in the U.S. I uh, sublet an apartment that I am on the lease and I pay every month. Um, so I am a U.S. San Diego resident. If I were to be here full time with no other option in, in, in San Diego, you have to go through a process uh, to get a residency card. Um, at first, a visa. And after a couple of years, that turns, well, I think initially it turns, you can get a temporary residency. After several years, you can get permanent residency. residency. So it it evolves. And it's not, I have many friends who have gone that far. Um, and it's not that difficult to do. Uh, it's just, you know, like anything going and getting all your documents and proof of uh, your income and, and such. All right. It's Jody Silly, president of the Film Consortium San Diego, also teaches at San Diego City College. Jody, thanks. Well, if you're a parent of an older child or maybe of an adult already, you probably talk to them like you do anyone else. But did you do that when they were, you know, a baby? Probably talk to them differently in like a cute, high-pitched way. Turns out a new study finds baby talk is something that's done by adults all over the place. 
but why? Cody Mosier is a study co-author and graduate student studying cognitive science at UC Merced, also joined by the parents of a 20-month-old child and a 4-month-old. Dr. Andrea Bennett-Warner, occupational therapist, and her husband, Dr. Sam Warner, a family practice physician there in New Jersey. And uh, we do think we have a kiddo with us. We'll get to that in a second. But uh, Cody, to you first, since you did this study, uh, surprising that, that pretty much everybody does this, like across continents and languages? Yeah, it was it was kind of a surprising finding. Um, one of the things is that for a long time, people have been saying, uh, there are a bunch of societies where people maybe don't do this. And um, we included a number of these in our sample where uh, people were said to rarely talk or to rarely sing to their babies. And um, lo and behold, nonetheless, um, when they do tend to talk or sing to their babies, they tend to do so in similar ways around the world. Uh, Doctors Warner, thanks for being with us also. Uh, and you have uh, which child are you with now? We have both here with us. Oh, both. Okay. Rafa and big brother Moshe here as well. Okay, and one's 20 months, right? We said, and one is four months? Correct. Okay. Correct. Which one is talking now? Which one the is talking? The one that's talking is the 20 month old. Okay, tell, tell, the, tell, the, tell the 20 month old to wait for the question. <laughs> it's baby's first interview, Charles. Yeah, okay. Wait, wait for the question. So, so parents, how do you deal with with talking to to your your two infants and uh, you know at the risk of having you feel embarrassed and we don't mean to do that but can you give us an example of how you talk to them absolutely i think you know number one this little guy when you have a young little baby you start really just trying to mimic what they're saying which kind of kind of gets you going with this parentese if you will with this baby talk of like oh what's going on and making sounds and i can see if he might engage me in making some of his sounds. And then as you get, as he gets older, then, you know, you try to emphasize some of the things and you get really excited about the words they're saying. So you repeat them afterwards saying, oh, yay, more, more, more to get them to say it again and again. Um, So let's see if I can get Rafa going. Que hace Rafa? We speak Spanish at home. So (laughs) Rafa, Rafa, que hace Rafa? It's perfect. This is the perfect example. And it's like you know, everyone knows what we're talking about when we say like baby talk. But but did you even surprise yourself? Because it's just it was like a natural thing that you just do when it clicked when when you when you had the kid. You know, it's it's really very natural. And I think there has been a movement of like parents who have tried more to speak to their kids in you know, full sentences, the way you would speak to an adult, but it, number one, as an occupational therapist who does early intervention, which is zero to three years old, I can tell you that really there is something very important for the brain development about having that high pitch sound and those very um, truncated sentences like more and please, um, because that's helping the kids pick up the language that you're trying to share with them. Um, But it just, it feels more natural. It feels weird to talk to this little human being that just came. It's like full adult anybody. What are you doing there, sir? Yeah. (laughs) You know know what I was thinking? Please give me that now. You know you can't do that. (laughs) I was thinking our bosses talk to us like that all the time. (laughs) Uh, Do do you, do you get the sense that your kids, uh, kind of get your your meaning not the words obviously but the sort of emotional intent of what you're trying to communicate 
Absolutely. And, and I think that I think as a parent is the most surprising part, um, the amount, because, you know, there is a lot as human beings that we provide in the tonality of our conversation and in our body language. And so like, I can just say, no, no, thank you. I don't want that. Or I can say no. And there's a very different reaction you get from your child. <laughs> I heard, did you hear the no in the back? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is too cute. Cody, is all of this uh, ringing a bell exactly like what you what you were finding and, and what you were thinking about? Because there has to be a reason why we just innately do this. And it's to help them learn what we're trying to tell them. Because they don't know yet. It's a baby. Oh, absolutely. And, and one thing you'll notice is that... Um, well, well, so something that's that's neat about this is that uh, primates don't do this. Um, we're one of the only animals that have a distinct uh, signal for our babies. So chimpanzees, when they're communicating with baby chimps or gorillas are communicating with baby gorillas, um, they're not making really cute chimp and gorilla noises. Um, but when we communicate with our babies, uh, we tend to make these special kinds of noises for for them. And in part, this is us telling, hey, this is for you. Um, it's kind of hard for us to talk to other adults in that kind of way. Um, this is adult, uh, a signal that is designed specifically uh, for the baby to know that you're talking uh, to it. And um, yeah, it's it's something that comes up naturally. Um, just around the world, people seem to know exactly how to talk to a baby. Um, so even if you tend to go to, say, Tanzania or you go to uh, Amazonia and you start talking to an adult, maybe they won't have any idea what you're saying. But maybe when you start talking to a baby, they'll kind of get the gist just from the uh, emotional affect of what you're uh, communicating. Well, let me, let me go back to the parents on this. Do you think that there comes a time when, I mean, it's not like an on-off switch, right? I mean, do you at some point just stop talking sort of baby talk and transition rather rapidly to, you know, sort of quasi-adult talk? Or is it a kind of gradual glide? You know, I think that's a great question. And actually, we're just talking about that as a family because our oldest, Moshe, is really gaining the amount of words in rapid step that he can say. And so the other day, Sam said to me, you know, maybe we should start saying more than one or two words to him more <laughs> so that, you know, yeah. we can make sure that he's picking up on this language. And so we have made it a conscious effort to, yes, add in more general sentences um, and that way they, he can be picking up on the grammatic structure that we're using. You know, you know what the clue is going to be when your kid says, stop talking to me like a baby. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, you know, we still are adding in a lot of that, you know, parent baby talking because we want him to be picking up on those words and saying them and we want him to know, yes, you said the right word or no, you need to say it like he just started saying, ouch, ouch. But we want him to say oops, because if something drops on the floor, it's ouch. Ah, <laughs> okay. To us. So we're trying to get him to say oops. So oops. we really emphasize oops, oops, oops. oops. <laughs> All right. Thank you, everyone. Yes. This was fun. Yeah, it was. This is a highlight of the day. Uh, Dr. Uh, Andrea Bennett Warner and Dr. Sam Warner and the kids and Cody Moser over at UC Merced. The sounds, little baby sounds. We should talk like that to each other in the air. No, I'm good. Yeah, I'm good. <laughs> All right, see you tomorrow. <laughs>